live in a broken world, and we are broken people, where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Uh, I want to begin with a question that I want you to ask yourself. Uh, not just this morning either. I want you to think about this question throughout the week and in your small groups and beyond, right? What would it look like for you to dare dream again? What would it look like for you to dare to dream again? I was doing a little bit of an inventory. And uh, Anthony, what would it look like for the Lions to win the, uh, the championship, right? Or the Colts, right? For Manning to come out of retirement and to help the Colts win, right? Or the poor Bears, I won't even bring them up. Uh, or the Cardinals, I saw somebody with a Cardinal shirt on. That's not the kind of dream that I'm thinking of this morning. What would it look like for you to dare dream again? And the most important part of this, to dream with God about your life, about your family, about your nation, about your church. What would it look like to dream with God? The most important kind of dreaming and effective kind of dreaming you can do. Uh, people everywhere are in trouble and disgrace. Trouble can be circumstantial. Trouble can be that decisions and, and things that we've made in our life come back to roost. Uh, trouble can take a lot of forms. And troubles can be very grave. And disgrace looks like shame or humiliation. Uh, things aren't the way they should be. There is a lot of trouble and a lot of disgrace. In your marriage, maybe in your family, with your children, your extended family. Uh, as Nehemiah listened to his brother Hanani, his brother shared all sorts of news about the trouble and disgrace, the devastation that God's people experienced in Jerusalem. And we talked about that verse in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, how when Nehemiah heard the news, he sat down and he wept. He mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. And I want you to think about what does it look like if our hearts were to break for the things that break the heart of God. What would that look like? What is God's heart about the trouble and disgrace that's around us? There's a very specific situation happening in the story of Nehemiah that's historic, that is theological and biblical. And, 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 but I want you to think about it through the lens of your life as well. One of the first things that dies in our lives is hope. Hope dies. Our dreams just die. We turn our eyes, uh, you know, away from a problem. We close our ears to hearing news about a situation. We harden our hearts and develop an entrenched attitude about something. One of the first things that dies along hope is our empathy. We stop caring. 
We no longer weep or grieve. We no longer fast or pray or long for anything. We resign ourselves to the status quo. And I want you to see in this story, and we unpacked it in that first message, that hope didn't die for Nehemiah. And he didn't stop caring. He didn't stop listening. He didn't stop looking in on the trouble. He didn't stop putting himself in a position to understand, right? But what would it look like for you to dream again? For you to start caring? For you to listen and understand? That's something to wrestle with. Another thing that often dies alongside hope, though, are our prayers. Prayer is one of the first things to die when hope dies. And here's Nehemiah in this story. And Nehemiah, he prays to the Lord God of heaven. And he acknowledges the God-inspiring greatness, the goodness of God. He acknowledges that God's been faithful and has had this kind of covenantal love that he's expressed to his people time and again, regardless of who they were and what they were doing. He trusts that God's heart is going to be inclined to hear the prayers and to see his trouble and to see Jerusalem and to see Judah and to see the exiles and to see their plight. He trusts that God is going to be responsive and attentive. He comes before the throne of grace, confident that if he confesses his sins and his father's households and his nation's sins, that God will not only forgive but bring healing to the land. He calls upon God to offer, uh, to honor his covenant promises. And essentially in verse 9 he says, God, you said that if we return to you and if we'd observe your commands, then even if your people were banished in the farthest horizon that you would gather them from there and you'd bring them back and to a place that you've chosen as a dwelling for your name. Nehemiah has not abandoned hope. And it's evidenced by the fact of his prayers. He hasn't abandoned hope. It's evidenced by the fact of his concern and care and empathy. But let me talk about prayer for a moment. How should we think of prayer? I was reading uh, a, a book this past week. Uh, it's the one on missions, the perspectives of, of the world Christian movement. And there was an author that said that prayer is rebellion. And I was like, rebellion. Now that's something to think about. Prayer is rebellion. Against what? Against who? It's rebellion against the status quo. That in prayer, we declare that the status quo in our lives, and you know what the status quo in your life is, the status quo in our marriages, with our families, our, our land, our nation, our workplace, our schools, we declare the status quo to be utterly unacceptable any longer. So think about hope. Hope hears, listens, understands, weeps, mourns, fasts, cares, empathizes. Jesus, full of compassion, taught his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest. You know, people are harassed and helpless and, and without a shepherd, and they've lost hope. That's why they're lost. They've lost hope. But hope also prays, and it rebels. And I wonder if, if you pray, and I wonder if you rebel in prayer. What are you rebelling against? What is the status quo? Well, there's the status quo of sin in our lives. Who among us isn't or hasn't been seduced by certain sins? We tend to manage these sins. We tend to cope with them. We, we're, we, we allow at a certain level. And Who among us hasn't been lulled into kind of 
a, flesh, a fleshly complacency. We know our sins aren't great for us and best for us, but we're complacent about them. Whereas we ought to hate sin and confess it and ask Christ's blood to forgive and cleanse it and ask the Holy Spirit to purify us, we ought to be rebelling against sin. Often we're resigned to it. And it becomes the normal in our lives. In prayer, one of the ways we rebel is we declare that sin shall no longer be our master. We're not going to manage it and let it be our master. We're going to put it to death. It's a powerful declaration that we rebel against the power of sin in our lives. Another way that we rebel against the status quo is we rebel against the status quo of fear. Who among us hasn't been held captive by fear? Now, our greatest fear is death. And sometimes that fear becomes very prominent. It comes to the forefront of our thoughts. But we also fear things like risk or pain or especially change. We're afraid that if we change, that if something evolves or that this will happen and then this and then this and we start to talk ourselves out of change, it's our fears, our anxieties, our worries take over. We'd rather go with the status quo than to see something else happen. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it speaks of God's desire to free those who have been held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That's the ultimate fear. We're held captive in the status quo by uh, by, by slavery to sin, by slavery to fear. What are your fears? What is it that you're worried about? Were things to change in your life? So what's it look like to declare war on the status quo? It looks like choosing, deciding to walk in the spirit, to face problems, to face a crisis, to name a crisis, to act in faith. These are the sorts of things. We're rebelling against complacency and resignation in prayer. Another thing we're rebelling against is the status quo of Satan's power. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the first part of that verse talks about how Christ came that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death who is the devil. Now I know this idea of the devil being overthrown and conquered. I know that sounds kind of ethereal to the modern ears and stuff and it sounds kind of, kind of weird, maybe even archaic. But... The devil controls, he manipulates, his power, the world is his playground. And Christ has come to overthrow his power. Uh, Satan's power would have us conform. Satan gives us a certain script. And and everyone in power, everyone, you know, they they do his will. They, They have a way of keeping everybody in a certain place. And what we're doing is we're rebelling against sin, a fear of death. We're rebelling against Satan himself. And we're, we're praying that God might move in a profound way. So not only that we would care and have empathy, but that we might be called as God's people to bold, status quo busting, mountain moving, even king moving prayer. That's what hope looks like. We're called to bold, status quo busting, mountain moving, king moving prayer. Let's talk about king moving prayer for a moment. Here's the status quo, sin, death, the power of Satan. King moving prayer. The most important king that needs to be moved is the king of heaven. Yes, God, when we pray, the Lord God of heaven, the great 
an awesome, awe-inspiring, good God, covenantal, faithful God. God moves. God responds to our prayers. But also, our prayers move the kings of men. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, when we get to the end of the chapter, Nehemiah is praying. He's saying to God, he's saying, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer that your servant and your servants who delight and revere in your name are praying. But he says this, give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. There's always a man, there's always a person, there's always an earthly king or authority or power that seems to stand between us and what God's dream is. At this time, he says, I was the king's cupbearer. God, make this king's heart break for the things that break your heart. God, grant your servant success. Give me favor. Make this king's knee bow before your throne in heaven. There's many kings that need to be moved, a whole hierarchy of kings. But the greatest is the Lord God himself. And if that God moves, then all the others fall like dominoes. Nehemiah prays to the Lord God of heaven. And then he says, give me success with this king as well. I think of Jesus' parable in Luke 18, which is about a persistent widow who's experienced injustice in her life. She's in poverty. She doesn't have influence. She doesn't have political power that anybody would listen to her or pay attention to her situation. And she goes before an unjust judge and pleads her case. But the judge has a calloused heart. And the judge didn't fear God and didn't care what anybody thought about him or his decisions. He was no more inclined to care about this woman than to care about the well-being of a sparrow in some tree somewhere in a nest. But though from a worldly perspective, it appears that this woman's fate is in the hands of this unmerciful judge, that's not the reality. Because she understands that her case is not in the hands of this judge with a small letter J, but in the hands of the great and awesome God, the judge of all the earth, who is merciful. And so out of sheer exhaustion, she pleads her case to this unjust, uncompassionate judge again and again. And just out of sheer exhaustion, he finally relents and grants your request. And this is one of those parables where Jesus says, if even a jerk judge who's uncompassionate and unjust, who's calloused, if, if even he could be moved through persistence, then how much more the God of heaven and earth, the good and awesome God and king and judge and lawgiver, Jesus says, will not God bring justice to his chosen ones? Will God not respond? It's kind of like that parable Jesus told of what man, if his son asked for a fish, would give him a snake? What man, if his son asked for bread, would give him stones? You know, what judge, if you're persistent enough, wouldn't grant the cause of justice, even if he's an unjust judge? How much more would your father in heaven, who is just, who is good, who is loving, who is not college, how much more might that God respond? See, that's a posture of prayer that we're talking about. And often when hope dies, we stop believing in the goodness of God, the authority of God, the greatness of God, the power of God, the inclination, the heart, the will of God to respond to our situation. You know, if God could incline the heart of Pharaoh, I mean, how many times does the Bible tell us that Pharaoh's heart 
kept getting harder and harder and harder. And every time God did something, it got harder and harder. If God could move the heart of Moses in the, uh, the heart of Pharaoh in the days of Moses, right? See, that's the importance of knowing biblical history. If you know what God was able to do with other kings, then what might God be able to do with this clown, this turkey that's in the throne in, in, in Persia here, right? If you could move Pharaoh's heart to let your people go as your son into the wilderness to worship you, then maybe you can incline the king of Persia's heart to have some compassion and to understand my situation. And, and maybe you could move his heart. And, and maybe he would allow us to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city walls that lay in ruin and, and to rebuild the temple and, and that God's people might gather and like a son worship him in freedom without fear. Maybe God can do a Pharaoh-like thing with Artaxerxes. Prayer is one of the first things that dies with hope, empathy, care, concern. We stop thinking about the trouble and disgrace. You know, there's a, a kind of cost to compassion or care. You know, like when we care, then we feel obligated, you know, so we don't want to be obligated. So we, we don't want to hear and listen and like, it's just like, Shh, you know, you'll be fine. Just go work it out and, and Lord God, rekindle our empathy. Lord God, cause our hearts to beat for those things that are close to your heart. God, stir your people to have bold, status quo busting, sin busting, fear busting, Satan power busting, mountain moving, king moving. Move us to concerts of prayer, of that kind of prayer. Amen? Empathy dies often with our hope. Prayer dies often with our hopes. Action. Faith-filled action often dies alongside hope too. So when hope dies, we stop dreaming. When hope dies, we stop planning. We stop acting courageously and boldly. We stop rebelling against the status quo. We let sin have its way. We succumb to our fears. We conform to Satan's power. What happens when we lose hope? We stop going off script. When's the last time you went off script? Uh, the world's a very conforming place. It tells us what script we're to follow, what we're to say, what we're to do, what we're to think. Uh, the world's a very conforming place. But we're to be a people that go off script, that don't conform to Satan's power. We are to be a people that discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of our God and to act according to it. When's the last time you went off script? In your life, your marriage, your family. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah goes off script. It was a cupbearer's duty, script, not to be seen or heard, not to make waves. Your duty was you test the king's food, and if you lived to be another, lived for another day, it was great, and the king, he would live for another day because you, if you didn't die when you ate his food, it wasn't poisoned, and okay, so that was your job. Whenever drink was offered to the king, you were to, to taste it, and if you lived to another day, then good for you, but that was your role. And you spoke only if spoken to. And if you did speak, you spoke very carefully and very sensitively. 
And you didn't survive long in that role if you were a fool. Nehemiah would have been very wise about what he could talk about, what he should say. Uh, this, this is not a, an ordinary man. He's like a Daniel-type figure. You definitely never presume to ask a king for personal favors. You never brought your personal problems before a king. You put on a smile, you sucked it up, and every day you hope to serve another day. Now, Nehemiah had a fear of the king, as did all the others, life and death. Your life lay in the balance of this king in many ways. But we act the same way. We act like cupbearers often in our lives, which means we understand the pressures we're under in our life, our family, our work. We know what the pressure of the status quo is. We know the dangers of putting our neck out and risking and going off the script of what people have come to expect of us and demand of us. Uh, we've lost our voice. We've been shoved in a corner and told to be quiet as God's people. And many of us are content to oblige that script. But in Nehemiah 2, I just want to point out to you that Nehemiah goes off script. And, and change doesn't happen. Redemption doesn't happen until we learn to go off script. Uh, we don't realize our redemptive potential unless we learn to go off script. So what's the first thing that Nehemiah does? He allows himself to feel compassion. He allows himself to weep and grieve and to feel empathy. And he allows the king to become aware of his sadness. You weren't supposed to show any emotions. You know, people don't want you to show emotions because they don't want to be obligated to your cause. So they just kind of, they tell you to get over it and take a few days and come back when you're, you know, back to the status quo script, right? Nehemiah refused to do that. And so in verses 1 and 2, it says, uh, during the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before Nehemiah, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I'd never been sad in his presence. But the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Why bury our concern, our empathy, our care for this world, for uh, our families, even our own children. We bury these things. Why not let them come to the surface? Why not express our passion and concern? And, and, and that's what Nehemiah does. And of course, that's a terrifying thing to do. Because, you know, status quo, we bury it, we cope that way. But when you let it come to the surface, then you're known. And the problem, the trouble, the disgrace is known. And that can be a terrifying thing. And Nehemiah is, of course, terrified. In verse 2, he says, I was terrified. I was overwhelmed with fear. I'm really glad that Nehemiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts those little details in there for us. Because it can be a terrifying thing to entrust your cause, your concerns to other people. Faith isn't an absence of fear. Nor is it an absence of sweat. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood falling to the crown. When he considered the trouble and disgrace that humankind was in, when he considered the trouble and the disgrace of what the cross would look like, 
Jesus' sweat became like drops of tear. Faith isn't an absence of sweat. He was overwhelmed, even to the point of death. Faith is not an absence of anxiety and worry. And like, but faith isn't an absence of fear, nor sweat, nor obedience either. Jesus drank what was set before him by the Father. Nehemiah took the cup that was set before him that he was drinking on behalf of the king. And and we have to learn to take the cup that's been given us on behalf of the king and and, and we have to face these fears and of course we're terrified, but we have a great God who's an even greater king, right? So Nehemiah takes the cup that's before him. Verse three says to the king, may the king live forever. I may not, but may you live forever, you know. And then he explains himself to the king. He says, why shouldn't I be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Just to give you an insight into how uh, profound Nehemiah is here. He understood, like he's appealing to the values of this king. The Persian kings were very concerned, not just about their health and well-being, but they were concerned about preserving their own memories the memories of their family, of their ancestors. They uh, were very pretentious. They didn't want their glory to fade. They wanted their glory to be preserved for generations. So Nehemiah's angle of conversation here with the king is, the memory of my ancestors, of my city, of my people, has been erased and it's fading and I want to do something about it. But really the bigger issue is God's name and God's glory is fading when it should be shining brightly. Uh, God's concern for his own glory, Artaxerxes' concern for his own glory, was a point of connection. He's just, just a very savvy uh, kind of approach to things. Just That's a little free aside. Uh, but the king of heaven was already moved by Nehemiah's prayers. And the king of heaven had already set the dominoes in motion and moved this king's heart as well. And so in verse 4, Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah, what is it that you want? That's a really good question, isn't it? What is it that you want? What is your request? What is it that you would have a king do for you? This is a matter of prayer as well. Like, what do you want from God? What is it that you want God to do for your life, your marriage, your nation, your family? Again, I love how the Holy Spirit inspires Nehemiah to put everything down on paper. Verse 4, Nehemiah explains, you know, he takes a deep breath and he, he says, it says he prays to the God of heaven. You know, he takes a big gulp, he drinks the cup set before, he, he prays, this is like a little breath prayer. He's like, okay, I've been praying about this, I'm in this situation, it's obedience time, it's action time. I need to take this cup. He prays to the God of heaven. He knows the gravity of what he's about to do. He knows his life lay in the balance, not just of this king, but of the eternal God and king. In verse five, he answers the king. He says, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor with you, if I've served you well, send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, that I can rebuild it. Send me. There's been a lot of great men throughout history prophets that said, here I am, send me. The son of God 
here I am, send me. What if the church were to say, here I am, send me. If you as a believer, here I am, send me. What would God have you rebuilt? What is it that is of trouble or disgrace? Where has hope been lost? What would God have you do? Verse 6 tells us how Nehemiah gave a very definite timeline. And he says, if it's pleased the king, send me. And he asked the king to provide letters of commendation for his safety and protection as he travels. He asked the king to write letters to secure timbers and materials and the resources that would be needed to rebuild the various gates and do what was needed. Uh, Verse 8 explains, Nehemiah says, the king granted my request. Which king? Both of them. Both of them. The king even offered officers from his own infantry. He offered cavalry, his personal cavalry, to escort Nehemiah. Now you talk about favor. The heart of a king has been moved. And, and why was this king so inclined? Nehemiah tells us that it was because the gracious hand of my God was on me. That's the only explanation. The gracious hand of my God was on me. This is his testimony. Verse 20, Nehemiah doubles down on this same truth. He testifies to his own men when he eventually arrives in Judah. He explains everything that's happened. And, uh, and he says even to his enemies, the God of heavens is the one who will grant us success. His gracious hand has been upon me. He will give us success. When's the last time that you called out to God and asked God to give you success? Do you believe God will give you success in the things that are close to his heart? Uh, It's been many years. When we first came out here uh, to Lakeside and and moved into this facility, uh, there was just like an avalanche of guests and visitors and needs and all sorts of things that, that happened. And at that time, our leaders thought, we're building a church, we're building a ministry We want to build a church and ministry where we're as faithful to God as we can possibly know how to be. And we entered into a a coaching relationship with an organization that was a discipleship ministry. And they asked us this one question that I want you to ask yourself. They said to, to the staff and our elders, they said, if you were to pray and God were to grant you success in whatever you asked of him, what would you pray? What would you ask for? What plan would you offer up? What authority would you need? What resources would you need? What kind of timelines would you need? What kind of God-glorifying plans, God-glorifying dreams would you have God bless? Do you have any idea what you're doing? What is success? You know, Nehemiah says, give me success in the eyes of this king. He had something tangible and specific and concrete. We often think spiritual, I'm sorry, we often think strategic planning is an unspiritual activity. But you know, when David built the temple, he laid out all the stuff that was needed so that his son could build the temple. Nehemiah, before he even went to the king, knew exactly that if he were in a situation, what would be needed? He knew exactly. He had a plan in place. Plans aren't spiritual, aren't unspiritual, right? Right? 
There's unspiritual planning. But when you're dreaming with God, God blesses those kinds of dreams. And, and he's dreaming with God. And, and churches also lose hope. Do you realize that churches lose concern for those who have lost hope? So a church can go on existing and caring for itself and building itself up in love. And we can become very self-absorbed and self-love. And you individually can as well. What's it look like for us to care again, to have empathy, to understand, to listen? What's it look like for us to begin praying? Churches become prayerless. How do you know a church has lost hope? Because nobody is praying. Nobody is dreaming again. Nobody is saying to God, what would you have us be and do at this time and place in this world to be faithful? And, and where would you have us go and be sent? And, and what would you have as your will? But churches also stop planning and working and coming up with timelines and, and, and ideas, and, and they stop doing that as well. And it's devastating. I think of uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's telling them, I'm the king that you need to contend with to do great things, and all authority has been given to me. And here's what I want you to do with my authority. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the name, right? And I want you to teach them to obey everything, observe everything I've commanded. And don't forget this. Remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You can't say you don't have permission to change the world you can't say you don't have the authority, that there's something that God's withholding, the king's withholding from you. You have the time, you have the people, you have the resources. Whatever is needed, the authority has been granted to you, and I'm with you. The gracious hand of God is with you, just as it was with Nehemiah, just as it was with Moses, just as it was with David. We don't have a lot of excuses. Last Tuesday night I spent... Uh, Several hours with our elders. I think it was like four hours, to be honest with you. We asked forgiveness from our wives. Uh, we were talking about the Great Commission. And it wasn't a meeting where we were talking about, do we need permission to do this? Do we need authority to do this? Does, you know, Christ has already given us permission and authority. But I was describing what is success? What kind of disciples is Christ asking Lakeside to make? Uh, he's asking us to make a people who live for the Father's glory, whose heart breaks for the things that break the heart of God. God wants us to make disciples who abide daily in Christ, who rely on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to do for us what can't be done by human strength or calculation. God's trying to ask us to make a people eager to build up his kingdom. Marriages, families, the church, to build one another up in love. Yes, I love my church, and, and we had that series, and we unpacked that. But God also wants us to be a people who make the purpose of God's glory among the nations their primary business. If we know what God's dream for our church is, then the only unsettled matter is what Nehemiah says. The God of heavens is the one who will grant us success. Do we believe this? And are we willing to pray and live and act accordingly? 
Do we believe, do you believe the God of heavens is the one who will grant you success? We talked about some specific plans of how not only can we make disciples, but how can we unleash the disciple-making capacity of each and every member of this church? You know, we want you to be a healthy disciple. We want you to be filled with a love for God and a love for people. But we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to fill this earth with the glory of God, to subdue the earth for his kingdom. We exist to multiply new life in Christ. Just like everything that God creates is able to reproduce according to its kind, we're to reproduce spiritually according to our spiritual nature, right? We're to multiply new life in Christ to the ends of the earth, making disciples. So not only do you have a capacity to be healthy, but you have an unrealized capacity to make disciples. You have a disciple-making capacity that's been on time. What would it look like for us to build a church where that gets unleashed? Everyone sent, everyone on mission, everyone, right? What would it look like to be a church where marriages are being healed? Families being fortified. I was driving through uh, Effingham all the way into southern Indiana, the, the, the land that time forgot, and I was driving, and I, I drove by this one church, and they had a big banner that said, miracles happen here. And I was like, oh, probably some charismatic, you know. But then I thought, miracles happen. Do we believe that God can do the extraordinary in us? The God of heaven, the great awe-inspiring God, can he do something in us, in our families, in our church, in our world? That's the church multiplying groups, the church going on mission, the church raising up leaders and ministers and elders and church planners and missionaries, the church becoming a church, this church becoming a church that builds up other churches, this church becoming a church of influence that makes the kingdom of Satan crumble, right? The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. These are not self-centered plans. These are kingdom plans and dreams. To be disciples, to make disciples. The God of heavens will give us success. You know, there are some material things that a lot of people will take the book of Nehemiah and hijack and they're like, hey, we're trying to decimate our debt. Well, we're, we're, we're right on the, the edge of that, folks. I mean, we've got a couple hundred thousand to go after having millions. So, uh, yeah, we want to retire our debt. Do we have plans to build this or build that? Yes. But that's not what this is about. This is about God's desire to build a people of hope that bring hope to the world. And that is an interpersonal, relational, spiritual matter. Do we believe that the God of heavens will give us success? So I come back to this question. What would it look like for you to dare dream again? with God for your heart to beat for the things of God for you to engage in bold status quo busting mountain moving king moving concerts of prayer what would it look like for you to draw up tangible specific God honoring plans that have teeth in them that have goals and specifics and accountabilities built into them? What would it look like for God to give you success in something that is going to matter long past your own memory? What would it look like for you to face the trouble and disgrace 
that's in your life, in your marriage, in your nation, in your land? What would it look like for God to grant you success were he to grant it to you? Have you prayed about it? Have you thought about it? Have you discussed it? The God of heavens is the one who will grant success. The gracious hand of God was upon me. I will be with you always to the end of the ages. All authority has been granted to Christ the King and you're praying to him. I think in this story, we find a way to rekindle hope. We start caring, we start praying, we start dreaming, daring to dream again. Will you let this story change the status quo in your life, in your world? This week we got small groups. It would be pretty phenomenal if we went to groups this week and shared our dreams that we've had with God about our life, marriage, family, church. What does God put on your heart? What, what honors him? What does he want to do? And for us to pray boldly that God make it so with his power and presence. Would you think about this question beyond this morning? What would it look like to dare dream again with God? Dear Father, we come before you in rebellion against the status quo. We come before you fully aligned with your kingdom and purpose and we pray your kingdom come and your will be done and Satan's be undone in this world through us at this time and place. Help us to care, help us to pray, help us to be bold actors of, in faith in this world, in this time that you've put us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.